Good morning. It is so good to be with you again, and we didn't wait 10 years to link back up, so praise the Lord for that. Um, if you have not already done so, I do invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. If you don't already know, my name is Derek Pulliam. Um, I serve um, a small team of faithful believers at um, what I would call a, a relaunch or a replant uh, called Christ Our Hope uh, for uh, just under five decades of service. My father-in-law um, served that congregation um, under the name Believer's Chapel. Um, and it is my prayer that the Lord will uh, bless me with faithfulness um, and the enablement to carry that ministry forward so that we can be a disciple-making church that makes disciples. So if you... Uh, uh, have any thoughts about us or uh, wonder what to pray for us, pray that we'll be that, um, a disciple-making church that makes disciples who make disciples. And along with that, as we go through the process of doing renovations and things of that nature, just pray that that goes well. Amen? So, uh, with your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to read into your hearing verses 1 through 6 of Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and, with, and on her head a, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious and most wise Heavenly Father, with all of the wonders and the glory that you set before us in this marvelous book, the book of Revelation, we pray, Father, that you would reach us and meet us where we are. And that as you do, Lord God, you would lift us up with the beauty of your word, the profundity of your message, the weightiness of your presence. Father, we come in here one way, some of us with the very cares of the world bearing down upon us. Show yourself to be strong, Lord God. 
Show yourself to be so glorious and so high that the things of this earth grow strangely dim. Speak to our hearts, Lord, for your servants long to hear your voice. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a message that I've entitled, A Woman, A Great Red Dragon, and the One Who Is to Rule. A woman, a great red dragon, and the one who is to rule. The book of Revelation, you will find, follows um, a particular pattern or structure. It recapitulates, and by that I mean it repeats itself, covering the same ground multiple times, but in a progressive manner. Moving from, and we see this as we move from the seven seals to the seven trumpets, we're taken on a cyclical course. That is to say that as we pass through those seals and trumpets covering the same landscape, we do so from a different vantage point. You may recall as John is just about to hear this message concerning the seals, he's called up into heaven in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. And he sees around the throne the one who's sitting on the throne. And then he sees the Lamb. And then while he's in heaven, he's given glimpses of the supernatural. Showing us that heaven has a very strong hand on the things that are taking place on earth. And then as he's, he's caused to see the, the trumpets the visions that come out as a result of the trumpets, he sees essentially the same landscape, but from the vantage point of earth. As I thought about the the different vantage points, it made me think about a movie, a movie that not many people saw. So as I say the title, you're probably saying, I'm I'm not familiar with that. It's the movie called Vantage Point. Someone chuckled because no, not many people have seen it. In this movie, uh, starring Dennis Quaid, Matthew Fox, Forrest Whitaker, Sigourney Weaver, as you can tell, I enjoyed the movie, probably one of two people that enjoyed it. There's a terrorist event that takes place. And the telling of this event is presented to us multiple times through the movie. But, as the title would suggest, from different vantage points, whether it's a political official seeing the event or or tourists seeing the event or or the uh, secret service that were there seeing the event, we get different angles of the same story to fill in the picture. And that's what the book of Revelation does for us. It comes to us not as a puzzle book uh, looking for us to to uh, seem to prognosticate the future, but it comes to us as a picture book to give us a grand and glorious view of not just the Ancient of Days, but the Lord Jesus Christ in his fullness, causing us to bear witness to events that cover what the scriptures refer to as the last days. Last days leading right up into the final judgment. And typically, there are some who 
when they think about the last days, they think about something that's way, way, way down the line. But as the scriptures speak to us of the last days, they tell us very clearly that as a result of the singular sacrifice that Christ set forth in his own body upon the tree, he launched us right into the last days. So much so that as Peter is giving his Pentecost sermon, he begins to quote Joel chapter 2, verse 28, saying we are now in the last days. That being said, if Peter could say it from his vantage point that they were in the last days, you guessed it. We are now in the last days. So understanding that we go on this cyclical course, presenting us the same picture from different vantage points to give us this big, glorious picture of redemptive history and the working of our Lord, we come to chapter 12, again, entering in on this same cyclical course. But it appears that chapter 12 takes us back a little bit further than what the seals and the trumpets did. Chapter 12 actually takes us back to take a look at the persecuted people of the Lord as far back as the fall throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament and through the last days to see this wondrous battle being waged. And as we see this wondrous battle being waged, we see it as one that I say facetiously is largely ignored by the investigative reporters of our day. So caught up in the pandemic and the social unrest and who's to uh, uh, be in the White House, there's a very real battle going on right now. A holy war, if you will. A holy war between Satan and his forces assembled against the Lamb and those who he has purchased with his blood. These blood-bought ones are described by one Bible teacher as the earthly representatives of Satan's defeat. They are those who neither give themselves over to Satan to worship him, nor do they give themselves over to being conformed into the image of this world. And it's for this reason, because they don't give in to the world, that they, we, are in the crosshairs of the enemy. Being in the crosshairs of the enemy, it's no wonder that we find ourselves going through slow, plodding struggles. Perhaps you've wondered more than one or two times. Lord, I've been here with this worshiping community. There's a certain mental model that I have in terms of how I expected things to go, but they're not going that way. How could this be? Scriptures tell us that we are at war. Lord, I know that you're in control of all things. Why are things going this way? Not only do the scriptures tell us that we are at war, But the scriptures remind us that there is one who is in control of all things. The Ancient of Days. 
the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. John brings us to this, this passage of scripture, setting before us a glorious image, a horrific spectacle, and a majestic figure. And this is illustrated for us in today's text under the following three headings. Verses 1 and 2, a woman. Verses 3 through 4, a great red dragon. And verses 5 through 6, the one who is to rule. Sounds very similar to the title of the sermon, does it not? Verses 1 through 2, a great sign appeared in heaven. And so with that instruction that there's this great spectacle, this great sign appearing in heaven, we see uh, the narrative picture presented to us. And it is a narrative picture of a beautiful figure arrayed in dazzling glory. She is said to be a sign, but not just a, a sign, but a great sign. And she appears in heaven. She's wrapped up and decked out with the sun and accessorized with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She is clearly the vision of idealistic splendor. This scene of elegant radius brings to mind for me the, the Lord Byron poem. She walks in beauty. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies and all this best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and in her eyes. This, this poem speaks to us of one who is arrayed in glorious beauty that Lord Byron gazes upon and ruminates over. The Lord, as he presents us this scripture picture, shows us one that dwarfs the beauty and of, of, of the figure, and she walks in beauty. But as we look at this picture, it is not merely a picture that we are to gaze upon and see that she is just radiant and beautiful. There's more here than, th than just that. For as we look at this, this picture, and we see a, a reference to the sun and the moon and the stars. It, it brings to mind a, a vivid Old Testament text. Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, where we see the dream that Joseph had that depicted Jacob and his wife and the 11 tribes of Israel all bowing down before Joseph. It's, the, it's, it's, it's a way the passage is giving us a glimpse into what these pictures mean. You know, you, you read the book of Revelation and you think of it as a, a, a cauldron of confusion. Lord, what's going on here? But what we see or may see is a cauldron of confusion. It's the Lord's way of saying, I have given you the interpretive key to this book. And that interpretive key is the scriptures themselves, the Old Testament. And so as we look at this woman, and we see her as being reminiscent of the, the, the picture or the dream that we see in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. 
is helping us to frame our understanding of what this woman seemingly represents. And what she represents is the Lord's covenant people, arrayed in cosmic beauty and brilliance, radiant, glorious, and majestic. And as a picture of God's covenant people, it stands the reason we have to wonder a little bit. We wonder a little bit because when we look over in the Old Testament and we see the faithlessness of the people of God, we have to wonder why they're depicted in such a beautiful picture. When we look in the New Testament and we see the disciples and we see the church, with all of the failings, the foibles, and the falling down, we wonder why this picture is the way it is. When we peer through church history, or when we look at our own lives and we find ourselves saying, Lord, I'm, I'm prone to wander, and Lord, I do feel it. We say, Lord, why is this picture of this woman who represents us, your covenant people, so beautiful when we have moments of faithlessness and idolatrous moments. Well, the picture of beauty, this picture of beauty that the Lord depicts her as reminds me of the following words, beautiful, that's how mercy saw me. For I was broken and so lost. Mercy looked at all my faults, the justice of God saw what I had done, but mercy saw me through the sun. Why is she beautiful when she depicts us? Because when the Lord looks at us, he sees us through the lens of his son. And so when he looks at me, and when he looks at you, he doesn't see what we used to be, but he sees, you guessed it, Jesus. Jesus. This woman is wearing a crown. A Stephanos, a, a victor's crown. It's the crown that was placed on the heads of those who experienced glory in the public games. This is glory and honor achieved on the field of competition. And as she is the very image of glory and splendor, we find that this crown is speaking to us or describe, speaking to us and reminding us that as she is depicted with this crown, she is presented as being a conqueror, an overcomer. It reminds you of maybe the earlier portions of the book of Revelation. God's whole word to the whole church. By that I mean the seven churches depicted. And in each of those words of exhortation and admonition to the church, we find over and over again a word that says to the one who conquers, be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. The one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. Over and over again, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 26, chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 21. Over and over again, there's this message to the conqueror. And you're reminded of what the church is facing. And you kind of wonder, are they going to make it through? 
They don't look like conquerors. Now as we look at ourselves, maybe in meager numbers or small impact, we don't feel like conquerors. But when the Lord looks at you, he sees you in this picture, as this picture of idealistic splendor and glory. He sees you as more than a conqueror. Pressed in by principalities and powers. Though seemingly facing discouragement and death all day long, God sees us as more than conquerors. How do we achieve this, this victory? How do we achieve this status that identifies us as more than conquerors? Well, our Status as more than conquerors is found in Jesus. In all of our discouragement, in all of our seeming pictures of defeat, Jesus is the one who has secured the victory for us. 1 John 5, verses 4 through 5 says it this way, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Lord, I don't feel like I overcome the world. The word of God says you have overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? The verse says, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) The world, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us, always leads us in triumphal procession. We're overcomers, saints, whether we feel like it or not, whether we find ourselves plodding through the slough of the spawn, we're, overcon- we're overcomers, conquerors. Not only do we see her with this crown on her head, but she's, she's pregnant. A picture of the pangs of anticipation. In that we see a picture of not only one who is uh, in the last days now, but a picture of one who is uh, residing or a group of saints who are residing prior to the incarnation of Christ. The pangs of anticipation as she is pregnant pictures her or sets our attention on the people of God looking forward to the long prophesied one. It takes our attention back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 of the prophesied conqueror. It takes us forward in time to the Abrahamic covenant uh, as we see Abraham's seed being the conduit through which all the families of the earth would be blessed. We see her languishing. And it's a picture of the long anticipation of the Messiah who is to come. But not only do we see this sense of anticipation, but as she is there pregnant and crying out in birth pains, And in the agony of giving birth, 
picture we see is one who's going through great, a great deal of suffering. And it brings to mind the, the suffering and the pain that we hear over and over again reverberating throughout the Old Testament, whether it's on the, the lips of the prophets or the lips of the psalmist, as they cry out, Lord, how long? They see things uh, going in disarray. They see everything not the way it's supposed to be. And they're saying to the Lord, Lord, how long? And so there's the picture of lamenting anticipation as well. Verses 3 through 4. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Again, our attention is taken up to, taken up to, to this spectacle, this glorious spectacle in heaven. And this time we have another sign presented to us. And I, I would have to say that it's, it's, it's intentional. We go from a great sign to another sign, paling in comparison, but nonetheless a significant threat. It's a picture of a monster, a great, massive red dragon. And throughout the Old Testament at varying points we find that uh, those who have been uh, the, 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 the enemies of the people of God have been depicted as monsters. In Psalm 74, verse 14, we find Pharaoh in Egypt referred to as Leviathan, as well as Isaiah 27.1. Again, Leviathan is set on, set on stage for us, but this time it's Assyria and Babylon. And so one would automatically begin to think that as we see this one referred to as the great red dragon, it is very likely an enemy of God. And we're not left to wonder, Lord, is this Egypt? Is, is, this, is this Assyria? Is this Pharaoh? Is this Nebuchadnezzar? Because right there, set before us in verse 9, speaking of this great dragon, it refers to it as the ancient serpent called the devil and Satan. What we see in this great red dragon is Satan himself. A murderous adversary. The one who Martin Luther referred to as the Prince of Darkness, Grimm. Robed in red is an indication of his murderous character. We see this Repetition of, uh, of the number seven, seven heads and seven diadems, uh, a picture of completion. We see him wearing his crowns. His crowns appear to be different from the crown worn by the woman in the first two verses. The devil is not wearing a Stephanos, a picture of overcoming but instead diadems. With the diadem on his head, he's supposed to symbolize 
sovereignty, kingship, and authority. We find passages of Scripture in the Bible like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, reminding us that Satan is depicted as the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. While he is presented in such a way, he is at best a counterfeit of the great king of kings and lord of lords, the one who is truly and really in charge. Not only does he have seven diadems, but it says he has ten horns on his head. And over and over again throughout scripture, horns are an indication of power and strength. So he is characterizing himself or or being characterized as one who seemingly uh, play acts as being sovereign. Someone who play acts as being uh, 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 powerful and great. Filled with cruel hate. One whose destructive power presents him as a fearful enemy who has no equal on this earth. But as the passage presents him as having these attributes, it then depicts him as performing a particular action. It says he takes his tail and he wipes away or sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to earth. The reference there is actually drawn from Daniel chapter 8 verse 10. And in that passage it describes the little horn. The little horn who's on the attack and who's attacking the people of God. That's Alexander the Great in that passage. And as he attacks and wipes out the stars, it's a reference to the saints. It's very likely that as the Lord sought to have John draw from Daniel chapter 8, verse 10, he's meaning to show us that the one he's locked in battle with, Satan, the one that Satan actually looks to sweep down are the saints of God, depicting him as a clear and present danger. And as he strikes out against the people of God, we then find him before the woman, the one who's about to give birth, crouched down, or maybe coiled down, preparing himself to strike out at her, to destroy, to kill her child. The depiction here brings to mind several Old Testament passages. Perhaps you can think about how Cain killed Abel, or maybe it brings to mind uh, uh, more readily Pharaoh and his attempt to kill all the male Hebrew boys. Or Haman, as he was looking to commit genocide against the people of Israel in the book of Esther. Or King Herod, as he endeavors to kill all the Jewish baby boys up to two years old. Perhaps it brings those images to mind. But instead of causing us to cower and be afraid of this powerful enemy, the passage then begins to set our focus and our attention on the male child, the one who is to rule. 
looking at verses 5 and 6, we see clear and intentional redundancy here. It says that she gave birth, in the ESV it says she gave birth to a male child. In Greek it's actually saying she gave birth to a male son. Not merely a male child, but a male son. One would expect that there's no need to say son if you've already indicated that it's a male. But as you find in Greek, as well as various points in Hebrew, in order to emphasize a point, we don't find exclamation points. We don't find emojis. We don't find, I always say gifs, I understand it's pronounced, my wife's saying no, gifs. Okay, thank you. We don't find gifs in scripture. We don't find the ability to uh, uh, put it in bold font or underline. And so when scripture is looking to emphasize something, it uses redundancy, it uses repeat language. We find it in verses of scripture like, uh, you will keep them in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Literally, you will keep them in peace, peace. And so as the passage is saying, she gave birth to a male son, this is when everybody should go, I know what's happening here. Oh my goodness! This is the one that was prophesied. This is the one that we saw in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The crusher. This is the one that we see in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This is the one that we find in, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The king with four names. You crouching down, but the check you writing, you're not going to be able to cash because that's Jesus. Jesus is entering the scene. She's giving birth to Jesus, the one who is to rule all. The one who makes us conquerors, even in the midst of our weakness. And so I don't know about you, but I come to this passage and I get a little bit excited. You can tell, I guess. The passage is looking to bring us into a point of emoting. Because not with uh, uh, academic language does it bring us here to say that this, what we find here is the incarnation of Christ. But the scripture picture explodes off the screen to show us the enfleshment, the invasion of Christ into time to rule the nations. So crouch down coiled up, having a plan to uh, uh, devour this child, it's just not going to work. As the world says, we will not have this one to rule over us, that opposition just won't work. As the world looks to distort who Christ is, those distortions just won't work. Christ powerfully marches on. He is the one to rule all the nations with an iron rod. A clear reference to Psalm 2. 
passage is condensing in a condensed form. It is presenting to us the entirety of the gospel unfolding in Christ. It speeds ahead to show Christ conquering or the end result, the inception of Christ coming into uh, a creation, into human history. And then it goes right to the ascension saying, I made short work of him. There's no need for the passage to say, okay, well, let's, let's present the cross. Let's present the empty tomb. No, it goes from incarnation right to, right to the ascension. That's what we see there, where we see her child is caught up to God. Christ is conquered. Satan was poised to attack, but Christ has already crushed his head and is now ascending into heaven in this picture to assume his place on his throne. It's a glorious picture. It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture that reminds us that as he has conquered, he calls us into triumphant procession with him. He's the reason that we've conquered. He is the reason. Then it seems that as Christ has taken off, ascended into heaven, that the covenant people of God are left behind. You know, at first glance, you see this picture of this woman fleeing into the wilderness. And you think, wow, that's not really the, the best picture there. Like you built us up to be more than conquerors and you got her on retreat. But then you start to think, wow, in the wilderness is where the people of God were cared for. They had no lack. The clothes on their back lasted. I don't know about you, but you can go in a closet, or I can go in a closet, and I can find clothes. I get really sentimental. And so I have shirts. I have jackets that I just won't let go. I have my, my I told you, told you guys this last time I was here, my very favorite sports team of all time is the Detroit Pistons. I have the hat that I bought back in 1987. My very favorite team, still got the hat. My wife says, you need to throw that away. No. The jacket from 1989, 90, something like that, Detroit Pistons, I still have that. It might be worn, I had to take it to the cleaners to get it sewn up, to care for a hole there. But I'm holding on to it. We remember the people of God in the wilderness seemingly wandering for 40, 40, for 40 years. The Lord cared for their every need. Their sandals didn't want uh, uh, wear down. They weren't Nike, they weren't Timberland. <laughs> but the Lord preserved them. The clothing that they had on their back didn't wear with holes in them. The Lord preserved them. There were no convenience stores. There were no real oases or things like that. But the Lord fed them 
and cared for them in the wilderness. This picture of her fleeing to the wilderness is not a picture that should cause us to see her in a place of deprivation. Because the next few words that you find after seeing that she fled to the wilderness is that she flees to a place prepared by God for her. Sometimes I, I feel like I'm in the wilderness. I feel like I'm fleeing. I feel like I'm deserted. I feel like I'm in a place of dereliction. But just like the Lord prepared a place for Israel, and has prepared a place for this woman in this, this glorious apocalyptic scripture picture, it's a clear indication that as we are in the time frame that we're in now, while we are traversing the wilderness of this world, the Lord has prepared a place to nourish us and to care for us. It says that she's nourished for 1,260 days, and you don't have to break out a calculator, an abacus, or anything like that. It's, it's, it's a reference that we see over and over again in the book of Revelation. 1,260 days. It's the same figure that we find uh, um, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 2, and there it's referred to as 42 months. Or in Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, and there it's referred to as the time, times, and half times, three and a half years. It's a shorthand way of referring to the last days. Say that to say, as I've already said, as we are in the last days, and as we find ourselves going through things in this life's journey that makes us feel discarded, forgotten, cast off, the Lord has prepared a place for you. The Lord has prepared a place for you for nourishment, for care. And he invites us in those places of nourishment and care to cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And as he comes to us in this, this passage of scripture, he reminds us that despite what we may feel, we're more than conquerors in Christ. Gracious God and most wise Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that we find in your word. I pray, Lord, that you would take this word and you would cause us to over and over again to read it, to mark it, to inwardly digest it, all to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.